Uh, Exodus 2, 1 to 10 is what we're going to be reading this morning. Now a man of the tribe of Levi married a Levite woman, and she became pregnant and gave birth to a son. When she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him for three months. When she could no longer hide him, she got a papyrus basket for him and coated it with tar and pitch. Then she placed the child in it, put it among the reeds of the bank of the Nile. His sister stood at a distance to see what would happen to him. Then Pharaoh's daughter went down to the Nile to bathe, and her attendants were walking along the riverbank. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her female slave to get it. She opened it and saw a baby. He was crying and she felt sorry for him. This is one of the Hebrew babies, she said. Then his sister asked Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and get one of the Hebrew women to nurse the baby for you? Yes, go, she, said, she answered. So the girl went and got the baby's mother. Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this baby and nurse him for me, and I will pay you. So the woman took the baby and nursed him. When the child grew older, she took him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses, saying, I drew him out of the water. Thanks, RJ. Well, good morning again, everyone. Uh, allow me just to have a quick prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the written word that it was preserved for us. But we now invite your spirit to speak to us your spoken word, that by your spirit, we will be transformed and renewed to be more like our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. <clears throat> you know, as a pastor, I've been asked some incredibly hard theological or pastoral questions. Questions like, how can a good God allow suffering? Or how do you make sense of the Trinity? Or what is heaven going to be like? Is, are my pets going to be there? But the most common question I've been asked is not so much a theological question. People often wonder, what do pastors do during the week? I mean, what do you do Monday to Friday? And I think it's a fair and valid question because you can see us preaching, praying, leading meetings on Sundays. But what do pastors do during the week? I'm not going to answer that question, but at least let me assure you that we do a lot during the week, and often the hard grind happens not on a Sunday, but in between. Now, I'm telling you this because I believe the most common question that people ask God, God is the same question. God, what are you doing during the week? What are you doing now? Are you still at work? Now, Pastor James reminded us that we often call God a good God when things are doing very well in our lives. So we are aware of his existence and operation because we can see some divine intervention happening. But when things are not doing so well, we tend to ask, well, God, what are you doing? Or where are you right now? And so often it's so hard to believe in the God of the Bible because in the Bible, we read about God freeing the Israelites, 10 plagues, crossing the Red Sea, sending food from heaven. But we don't see those things now. And we often demand the same miracles. And as Christians, we believe that God is real because we've heard of the miracles of Jesus and the disciples, making the lame walk, turning water into wine, even raising the dead to life. But it still begs the question, well, Jesus, where are you now? 
Where is God in my life right now? How is God at work in our church? How can you still say that God exists when there's so much problems and pain around the world? And I believe Exodus 2 gives us a good answer of how God is at work and why. It gives us a hint of God's normal operation in our day-to-day life and to what purpose. So let me give you three things that we can learn about God and how it applies today. Right? Like a good Baptist, give me, I'll give you three points that tells us God's way and will back then and its relevance today. So the three things are the subtle sovereignty, how God works, the strategic salvation, why and to what purpose, and the saved Savior. We're going to look at the assurance that we get that God is still at work today. So firstly, let's look at the subtle sovereignty, how God works. Now in the Bible, we often read about big miracles, right? For example, as we said, during the time of Moses, maybe we can name Elijah, or during the time and ministry of Jesus. But biblical scholars will argue that miracles in the Bible are actually not everyday occurrences, that it wasn't happening all the time. They said if you read carefully, it is only during specific time and they're very rare, and it's quite spread out in the timeline, where God will display incredible supernatural miracles to the public for a specific purpose. That, for example, Moses, it was to prove that God was with Moses, and it was the time that he revealed his name as Yahweh. With Elijah bringing fire from heaven, it was to prove that Yahweh is better than Baal, the false god, because it was a serious time of idolatry. With Jesus, it was to prove that he was the Son of God. So miracles in the Bible are actually very sporadic and very specific in purpose. And so the normal way that God works out his plan is through his subtle but sovereign operation in people's lives. And this is why it's so hard to see God at work because he normally operates behind the scene. That if you're a gardener, you'll understand that normally you, see, you don't normally see the growth process of plants. Now, you might see incremental changes and you'll pick the harvest in the end, but behind the, sea, the scene, that roots spread out for nutrients and water, that leaves convert carbon dioxide to oxygen and produces sugar, that uh, flower, pollinates and flower pollination takes place and the next thing you know, you have fruits. And see, in the same way, we might see some changes down the road, but we don't normally see see what God is doing. So look at the story. It might look just mere coincidence, but God is clearly behind it all. Remember in chapter 1, last week, the story ends in verse 22, where Pharaoh ordering all Egyptians, not not just soldiers, to throw baby Hebrew boys into the Nile River. And so it was very hard for everyone to look into the Nile River because they are witnessing hundreds, if not thousands, of babies floating. But in Exodus 2, Moses, Moses' mother puts him in a basket, drops him by the river, hoping for the best, and the river actually saves him. For most Israelites, the river became a graveyard, but for Moses, it became his source of salvation. Secondly, the command came from Pharaoh's house to kill, or better yet, to perform national genocide, that there's nowhere to hide unless you leave Egypt. 
But the irony is, through God's providence, it was Pharaoh's own house that sheltered and raised Moses. In a way, it was Pharaoh who was technically raising him. Now, thirdly, in Egypt, Pharaoh is the most powerful man that he's basically considered as a god, that he's command to kill all the sons, but to save the daughters because he thinks that women uh, wouldn't be able to revolt against him. But here, three women, and one of them is Pharaoh's own daughter, going against Pharaoh in order to save a boy. That Pharaoh thinks he's in control, but God is clearly the one directing and organizing everything. See, Exodus 2 is giving us a behind the scene and an access of how God is operating. The Danile River is a place of death, but it became a place of salvation. Pharaoh's house, the spring of evil, became the source of protection. Pharaoh, the most powerful man in Egypt, but being overpowered by women. And see, God is not just reacting to the situation. He has planned every single thing. And so even though, as you'll see, God is not really mentioned in the story, or really not until chapter 3 where he makes himself known, it seems like he's not there, but he is at work. That it wasn't coincidence that Moses just somehow floated at the right place at the right time, or Pharaoh's daughter bathing by the river precisely where Moses passed by, nor Moses' sister was there to ask the question if the baby can be taken care of by a Hebrew mother. And see, the, what a, is it coincidence that Moses' mother not only saved her son, but she now gets paid to take care of her own baby? Every single detail was being controlled by God to exactly how he wanted it to play out. Therefore, for us, what it means that just because God is silent, it doesn't mean that he is absent. Just because you cannot see and understand what God is doing in your life, it doesn't mean that he is not doing anything. It means that you don't have to wait to see a big miracle before you can be certain that God is right now in control. You don't need a sign from heaven. You just need a little bit of faith. Because I know many of you today are asking, well, what is God doing now? Why did God make me this way? Why did God put me in this very difficult situation that I cannot handle? Why was I born in such dysfunctional family? Why did God allow coronavirus to happen? Just a few weeks ago, I was asking a similar question. Why did God lead us back here in Sydney? Now, the answer is still, I don't know. And often the Bible is silent in answering our personal grief. I don't know why you're facing problems, experiencing pain, or struggling with life. But here's what I know. The Bible tells us that God is not a spectator. The Bible tells us that God has a plan and a purpose to every single thing that you are going through right now. That God may be silent, but it doesn't mean that he is absent. He's working his purpose quietly, under the radar, behind the scene, even when everything seems to be out of control, he will not only turn things around, but we can be assured that everything is working according to plan. Jesus said in Matthew 10, verse 30, and even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Now, I stopped caring about my hair. 
But see, God still knows how much is left and he cares that it has a purpose somehow. That even the most insignificant details about your life that you might not know about, God knows and God cares. And therefore you can be assured with a little faith that God is acting or doing something right now. Now here's another application for us as a church. Exodus 2 is reminding us that every small thing that we do makes a big difference later on. Moses' mother putting him in a basket. Moses' sister following him and asking the right question at the right time. Pharaoh's daughter having compassion, it says there. That the small actions that these women are doing played its part to raise Moses to be the greatest leader of Israel. It means that your, your, your short conversation with your neighbor or helping out a friend or turning up to teach Sunday school every week, or simply your warm welcome in, in the church to, a new, to someone new, it can be used by God to bring significant impact in years to come. That we might not see it now, but it will bear fruits and, and has a purpose later on. Because often in ministry, we're driven by results, aren't we? We count bumps on seat, amount, the amount of giving, now, these are all good metrics to, to evaluate growth. But sometimes we are so driven by numbers that we forget that it is God who is truly at work, even in the small faithfulness that we do. This also means, sorry, one more application, that the best contribution we can do for our church and ministry is prayer. That if God is utterly in control, then the best way for us to move things is simply to pray. Now, I won't go into details, but the Bible tells us that prayer moves God. That you don't, it says that you don't have because you don't ask. But at the same time, it tells us that prayer moves our will to be more in line with God's will. So if you want your ministry to be effective, make sure you spend time in prayer. Now, here's the twist. Because I know many of you will be thinking now, if God saves Moses from death and disaster, does it mean that he will be saving me? Does it mean that God will save my marriage? Does it mean that he will save my business? Does it mean that God can control the, the parable results this Thursday so that I can win the $120 million and solve all my problems? Well, God can, but it doesn't necessarily mean he will. And here's why. And here's our second point. God's strategic salvation now here's a Bible study question for you. Why did God save Moses, but not the hundreds and thousands of other babies drowning by the river? Why just one baby in the midst of a national genocide? Because we know the story focuses on Moses and how he was saved. And often the wrong application to make is to quickly uh, equate ourselves to Moses and think that, well, if God saved him, maybe he can save me from my particular problem. But as I said, don't forget that Moses was saved and there were hundreds and or if not thousands of babies drowning by the river. So what's going on? Here's what's going on. And you really need to see the whole Exodus for this, if not the whole, uh, the whole Old Testament to understand this. That God's ultimate plan is not just to save baby Moses, that is just one part of the plan. That's just one step. The reason God saved Moses is so that one day Moses can lead the people out of Egypt, and that's another step, 
so that they can worship God. Or as we pointed out last week, or to serve God is the same Hebrew word. That they were saved in order for God's chosen people to know God, and by knowing Him, they will worship and they will serve God. See, in Exodus 7, Moses confronted Pharaoh. It says, the Lord, the God of Hebrews, has sent me to you. Let my people go. Why? Why? So that they can do whatever they want? No. So that they can worship me. Now, Moses, it means that Moses was saved so that he can stop the people from serving Pharaoh to serving God instead. That even Pharaoh is part of God's plan. Look at Exodus 9. It says that I have raised you for this very purpose. God said that I might show you my power and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. God is saying that the reason why you are the Pharaoh, and later on God will say the reason that you are so stubborn to let my people go is so that I can display, I can show my power and my name will be proclaimed. God's ultimate purpose is to bring glory to himself. That God is for God. His greatest purpose is to be glorified. That God created everything, including humanity, you and me, in order to bring glory to himself. Because often we make it about ourselves, right? That God loves me, God loves us, that he dies for us, that he provides for us, 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 or me, me, me. Now, God does love us. But beyond that, the purpose of God's love for us is that out of his love, it will display his wonderful nature, which in turn will lead us to glorifying him. That God's power, God's love, God's mercy, God's justice, it's all about for the glory of God. So in the end, it's not about you and me, because that will make us God, wouldn't it? If we are the end of it all. That the reason the Bible is preserved for us so that we can, not just so that we can gain some biblical knowledge, but it is so that we can hear from God and know Him, and by knowing Him, we can turn to Him and be saved, and that He will be glorified. The reason why Jesus came is so that He can represent God, God in flesh, and by knowing Jesus, we get to know God, and so that we can turn to Jesus, and that He will be glorified. The reason why Jesus established the church is so that we can represent God and be a light and soul of the community and so that other people will get to know God and through us and that they will, will turn to God and glorify Him. See? Making God known for His glory is life's greatest and most liberating purpose. And so the Bible is telling us unless, unless you are knowing Him, unless you are glorifying Him, you are not living your greatest purpose. And here is why this is important. Because the passage or the book of Exodus is really teaching us that everyone is serving or worshiping something aside from God. And it means that you are enslaved. That if you are living for something else aside from the glory of God, then you are not living for what you have been created for. Whether you are spiritual or or unspiritual, whether you're an atheist, an agnostic, or religious person, everyone is capable of worshiping and serving something or someone aside from the one true God. That the modern person is often enslaved by personal ambition. That you're worshiping your personal dreams and aspirations, whether it's career, prestige, wealth, or power. 
the traditional person is often enslaved by, by cultural expectation, like having a good marriage, family, or a, or a moral reputation. See, even that can be enslaving. Even as a pastor, the temptation is there to be known and make a name for ourselves. See, everyone is aiming to achieve something in order to glorify themselves because we want people to know our name and to glorify us. And what do you think the purpose of Instagram and TikTok is? It's either to follow someone or to make other people follow you. I mean, that's the aim. It's either be a worshiper or be the one being worshipped. I'm not saying, sorry, I'm not saying it's completely evil, but really it's the perfect platform for self-glorification. It's saying, look at me, recognize me, worship me, know my name and like me. And so we are enslaved by the amount of views that we have. We are enslaved by the amount of likes that we have. But God is saying, unless you stop proclaiming or glorifying your name, you are left in slavery and death. And so God offers us salvation to save us from worshiping the wrong thing to worshiping him as our maker and savior. So this is why the the bigger plan is for the Israelites to be freed from slavery, not just so that they will live longer, happier, and wealthier. No, so that they will know and worship the one true God. That is the real salvation in the book of Exodus. The first half of the book of Exodus is really what God did to liberate them. But the second half is basically what it means to know God and to worship him the proper way. First half, how to be freed from slavery. Second half, how to worship God the proper way. In John 17, 3, Jesus pointed out the same thing. And he gave us really the greatest revelation. He says, now this is eternal life. This is the meaning of life. That they know you, the one true God in Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Eternal life is about knowing God. Heaven is a place where you get to know God for all eternity. The ultimate salvation is not salvation from cancer or bad marriage or addiction or poverty. God can save you from that. But the ultimate happiness and freedom cannot be found in in health, wealth, and prosperity. But as the Bible said, it is only through knowing God through the Lord Jesus. Unless you know the Lord Jesus as your Lord and Savior, unless you turn to God through the Lord Jesus and worship Him and serve Him alone, you will be forever enslaved by false worship that will slowly eat away your soul. Now you might ask, well, how can I be certain that I will have freedom and ultimate purpose in Jesus Christ? Well, that's our third point, a saved Savior. Now, next week, we'll have a closer look at the person of Moses and how Moses really points to a greater Savior, uh, Jesus Christ. But even in our short passage, look at how the story points uh, quietly or subtly to to Jesus. Now, in the Old Testament, in the Old Testament, Moses was God's chosen one, and he was placed in the Nile River at the risk of his life to be the liberator of Israel. So Moses literally entered the river of death, but was saved by God, because Moses cannot save himself. But more than a a thousand years later, Jesus Christ comes in, God's chosen one, and he entered Jordan River willingly, and he was baptized to begin his ministry or mission. And you know what that mission is? 
that he came to live the life that you cannot live, and he died a death that you should have died. So on the cross, when Jesus Christ was on the brink of death, he cried, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And you know why? So that we will never be. He died so that we can live. He was punished so that we can be free from our sins. That unlike Moses on the cross, Jesus Christ wasn't saved by his father, that he was abandoned so that we can be accepted. And so if you put your faith in the Lord Jesus, you can be assured that you will be accepted because before God, you are now a son and a daughter, liberated from death and free to know God and bring glory and honor to him. Moses needed to be saved to be a savior. Jesus refused to be saved to be our ultimate savior. Let me finish with this verse. In Romans chapter 8, verse 28, it's a very famous verse. People kind of apply it the wrong way. See, it says that, and we know that in all things, in all things, God works for the good of those who love him. So we often think that it means that God will solve our personal problems, that somehow everything will work out and our personal problems will be solved. But what's the passage really talking about? It's talking about our salvation. That in the end, in the end, God has planned everything to work out together and will work out for you to be a son and daughter of the Most High. That everything somehow, I don't know how, some, somehow will fall into place because he has planned it and he has paid for it. And one day for all eternity, you will share the glory of God. But only if, only if you love him by loving his son who has given his life for you. Church, let's pray. Bow your heads with me. Lord Jesus, we want to thank you for that great, great sacrifice that you literally entered death so that we can gain life. Father, we thank you for sending your son, for giving up your one beloved son for our sake. Father, I pray for those who don't know you yet. I pray that by your spirit you will work out all things to work together so that they too will have eternal life and that they will be freed from slavery, whatever slavery that they are in. And by turning to you, they will see their greatest purpose, their, their ultimate purpose in life, the greatest joy that they will see and receive the Lord Jesus. And by knowing him, you will be glorified. This we pray in his name. Amen.